You've found the Virtually Possible podcast. Join the discussion on future of work, organizational design, and personal growth. Hello and welcome. The Virtually Possible podcast strikes again. I am joined today by my dear friend, Piotr Pisaj. Piotr is the co-founder and CEO of Uncapped, a growth accelerating company, if you will, that empowers founders to grow without giving up their equity. I have watched Piotr build this amazing venture from the ground up over the last two years and couldn't be happier to see them taking the European market by storm. We are going to be diving into what it means to truly embody the culture of Uncapped potential, both on the business side as well as the organizational side, as Piotr is leading his team to further further propel businesses with access to funding so they can grow and deliver value to their customers. May it be in the B2C, B2B, or D2C space. Welcome, Patrick, to the podcast. Hi, excited to be here. Thank you for having me. It's a bit weird for us because we're both Polish, but we're going to be speaking in English so that everyone can get all of our fascinating stories and jokes coming out of this conversation. We have met back in 2000, I want to say nine or eight, maybe. Seven. Seven. <laughs> God, we're so old. At Warsaw School of Economics. And I vividly remember how we met because we were doing this project together. I don't know if you remember. It was like an investment project that we did. I think it was like a JP Morgan Corporate tournament challenge. or something. Yeah, some kind of a challenge no. for, for investors or young investors. And it was you, me, Andrew, and a couple other people. And I was definitely the worst investor. And I really didn't get what the hell are we doing there and i think we didn't win in the end either obviously <laughs> it was pretty terrible but yeah well you stayed in the investment world and in the banking world more so than i did so how about you give us a little bit of a background of where did you end up going after warsaw school of economics and where are you right now which i think is going to be the second part of our podcast but maybe a little bit about yourself personally yeah so um i still remember this challenge we did uh, i think <laughs> We were trying to invest in oil or some commodities and we had no idea about it. So, but yeah, as you know, like I studied at Warsaw School of Economics, but then I think very quickly I realized I really want to go to, to study abroad to London. So I moved right after bachelor's and moved to London to London Business School, where did my master's. And I think the plan for me was always to come back to Warsaw straight away. But while I was in London, I realized how many more opportunities I can have, which were virtually unlimited. And very quickly after joining the school, I got accepted to the analyst program in Citigroup. So right after school, I joined Citigroup as an M&A analyst. And this is very eye-opening for me because literally first week after joining the company, I realized it's a terrible place and I really don't want to spend any time there. However, being very indebted mm. to study at LBS, I had to stay for a year until I get my bonus. But I was always passionate about technology. I'm not sure if you knew that, but uh, alongside Warsaw School of Economics, I also studied computer science at Warsaw University. I was programming since I was six. And I really felt that I want to be more in tech. So very quickly, I applied to Google and got the job there. So the moment I got my first bonus, I quit the same day. And next day, I started in Google. I spent a bit over four years in Google in various roles in London and, and Mountain View. And it was a very, very interesting job. I think the being in, at that time, probably the fastest growing internet company, you learn a lot, you, you meet amazing people. It's now you have PayPal mafia, but also have like in Europe, you have Google mafia. And I think it opened my eyes a lot about what is possible and the, the future of tech. But after four years there, I realized that, you know, Google became a very big corporate machine and I really prefer to be closer to the early, early stage investments. I still remember, you know, I met Tabit and Christo when they were just 
eight of them they were starting transferwise, uh, giving them some ideas how to how to acquire Polish people in London to open Poland UK corridor for them or pound uh, Zote corridor. And I really felt like I want to be closer to the, to the, to, the, to the action to the to the faster growing companies to the more younger companies. And I joined uh, Venture Capital World, and I started in a fintech fund which at that time was called Orange Growth Capital. And I more or less stayed in fintech for the uh, for the next four years as a, as, 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 a, as a venture capital investor in various funds. I actually forgot that you were studying computer science. I'm glad that you reminded me. But now it makes sense. I think now I, I remember that you were running in between schools. And, and I also forgot that you were at Google. We have done so much over the last like 10 years. It's so weird. Yeah, I remember that then you were a lot in, in California. And exactly. going back and forth. Ever since I started working for Applove and we would see each other a lot in London when you were still at Orange. Or Berlin. Capital. Or Berlin. Or, yeah, that's true. But I remember, I remember also once we were talking about me investing in tourism. And even before I finished the sentence, you were like, no, no, don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> I think you made the right choice, especially now. Yeah, especially now, yeah. <laughs> especially now. I remember you wanted to start that ski trip company, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're still there, so good for them. But I think there not been an easy year, an easy season, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, I think I'm very much in bed with, um, with all of the tech stuff and the future of yeah. gaming and the future of content and stuff. So, so I'm happy about that. But sorry, let's go back to what you said about being a venture capitalist. That was a very interesting period of a life because you met so many people and you were able to network with so many. And I think that was also something I was interested in. How were you building that network? You know, being a VC is amazing job for network because your job actually is to network. I think, you know, uh, the main role of a venture capital investor is to spot new opportunities, meet new people, get introduced to the founders. Analysis is much less of it. You know, this, this job is really about spotting interesting trends, especially if you invest early stage, but it's not that much data to analyze. So it's about meeting creative people, getting the ideas, finding new trends. If you like this, it's an amazing job because you have virtually unlimited access to, to anyone you meet the most interesting people in the world. I always think that entrepreneurs are, are fascinating people. They are people, they are rebels. They are people who question the status quo. They, they spot the opportunity. And I always enjoy talking to them, helping them, you know, understanding their idea and, and seeing, you know, understanding their business model and seeing where the opportunity is. So I really, really loved the job. And I think the big, the cool part of my job was I joined a very young fund where I was the only one based in London. My bosses were in Amsterdam. So it also gave me even more freedom to do whatever I want because I had a free mandate, just do your stuff, find the deals, mm -hmm. find the companies. And, you know, when you're pushed like this, you know, if you do it well, it gives you tremendous opportunity to network and really learn from all the people around you. If you can share, what was the best deal that you think you've done? Oh, gosh. You know, the truth is I haven't done that many deals as, you know, you are, when you're a junior VC, you don't get to do a lot of deals because it's not your decision at the end. You have, you, mm. it's your boss's decision. I still remember that the company I was most excited about in my early days was for sure Tide, which is like a SME mm. neobank in, in UK. They're doing very, very well. I know that I, I really remember me pushing my boss to give him the term sheet and invest in them. But he said, oh, it's too expensive. And we did it at the end. You know, big miss. It will be a very, very interesting deal. Now, you know, we are actually launching partnership with them in a, in a couple of weeks. So, you know, oh, still, wow. still, that's awesome. still in contact with the company. And I think 
two years ago, when I was a bit more senior and I was working in our fund, there were several deals where we were trying to get in. But again, my bosses didn't let me in. They were like, I could have invested in credit us, which I was trying to push my bosses to do. They just raised a couple billion valuation. I was trying to invest in Mambu, who just raised at 2 billion valuation. So a lot of misses, which unfortunately I wanted to do, but couldn't. But yeah, hey, what's the life? Is it because your bosses, they would think they're, they're more experienced. They've had more of those bad deals done, right? So they, they feel more um, of a responsibility to not screw it up. And does that more often than not, especially in the early stage investing, causes people to be so cautious that they really cannot see past the fear and they lose out on opportunities or... Listen, I think everyone I worked with was very smart. It was very, very smart people. But I think the problem in venture capital world is it takes you many, many years to prove yourself. I think, you know, mm. you know if you're a good investor only after 10 years of, of investing. So mm. the feedback cycle is super long. If you're a hedge fund manager... After end of the year, you know, you made the money or not. If you are mm-hmm. a VC, many deals look stupid for first three years and then something changes and, and you look like a fucking genius. I think with these deals, you know, it's never obvious. I think a lot has changed since then. I think the key reason why people pass on the deal usually is the price. They think it's mm-hmm. too expensive. I remember every time when, when the deal I wanted to do, we didn't manage to, to invest, usually the key objection is too expensive. And it's very funny because when you speak to the smartest investors in the world, uh, you know, the indexes, excels of the world, what they tell you at some point is the price at the early stage is irrelevant. It's all about, will this company be category leader in five years time, 10 years time? And will this category be uh, the big one? And if you believe these two factors are true, the price you pay is absolutely mm-hmm. irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Are you paying 15 million, 30 million for a company? Makes absolutely no difference. Saying that, still a lot of investors who are, didn't manage to have these huge exits still think, oh, this is a bit too expensive. We are overpaying for this deal. And they are afraid to, to commit to a mm-hmm. deal. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. When you see those big exits or those big IPOs years after, you always think, oh, that was actually really cheap compared to yeah. where I'm sitting right now, right? So- exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's only getting, it's only going to get more expensive. Everything is only going to get faster, more expensive, more complicated. We're not rolling back this development of technology or transformation or valuation. So, but you know, the world is changing a lot, actually. So, I think even the VC landscape is changing. And that's why we started Uncapped, because what I realized. Uh, two years ago, when I was started to think about Uncapped, is that achieving this VC returns is getting harder and harder. Mm-hmm. The deals, as you said, top deals are getting so expensive mm-hmm. that you really have to, they really have to become a bit like billion dollar companies to achieve their returns. At the same time, there is loads of not so hot companies which really, really struggle. And by not so hot, I mean like if you're building today e-commerce business, and this e-commerce business, you know, tiny portion of e-commerce companies will be a billion dollar companies. I think, you know, it's very, very hard to be Warby Parker or I don't know, a way.com or, or whatever, the category leader, but there's plenty of very, very good ones. You know, the ones which will be worth 50, 100 million. I don't know, you sell the nice clothing for baby. If you are a decent business, you'll be doing, I don't know, 10, 20 million of revenue and be worth 100 million, right? Super, super good outcome for the founder. But these founders today, they really cannot raise the money because VCs, only are looking for these unicorns, these unicorns, mm-hmm. which will give them like, 
one billion valuations. And even one billion now is for VCs super small. They all want decacorns. And that's where I've seen the huge gap in the market for our business, because on one hand, you have VCs who VC returns are very hard to achieve. And if you are VC, I was really worried, can I make any money in this industry? And at the same time, you have all these other businesses who are starting to get capital and you can make good money by lending to them or giving them any form of capital in a more scalable way, sustainable, data-driven way and achieving a stable return. If I'm making, I don't know, 10, 20% without the risk over time, hey, I'm making a very decent return for, for myself. I think this is such an important issue that you're raising and it's not only in in the capital, you know, like a lending or investing area, but just generally what we were seeing is this disparity of success, right? And the, the access to opportunity between the superstars, so the unicorns, and those who are that middle class of entrepreneurs or middle class of individuals who are trying to grow in their niche or in their category. That has been something that I've been thinking a lot about as well in the years that I'm interested in. How can you help those who are only just the rising stars right now or are very keen to put in the work but are just blocked by lack of access to funding, to knowledge, and so all of that is super important that we go back to building up that torso, right? That middle class of businesses and individuals and, and exactly. individual and entrepreneurs. Exactly. And it's the same with like, we talked earlier about content creators privately, mm. right? It's the same about content creators. When you, there are these superstars, Mr. Beast of the world, ninjas mm. of the world, Kim Kardashians of the world, who are like, you know, hundreds of millions of followers. Yeah. But then we have this like huge torso of founders who need support, who need tools, who are doing a good job and they have their own audience, they have their own clients, but they need support. And I think there's a huge market and a huge opportunity in yeah. supporting them in all kinds of ways you can imagine. Yeah, so hopefully, you know, in the next 10 years, we're going to build more unicorns that do support them. But I think, yeah, it's, it's a valid point, right? Like there's also a whole new generation of businesses, of entrepreneurs coming into the market that we don't want to think about maybe as much because we're focused on whatever we're doing right now. But there's a huge tidal wave coming of people who are only going to be first our competition, but also our partners. So the way I see this is as an entrepreneur, I see that I have the responsibility to also create a universe for those new entrepreneurs so that they can grow faster and maybe remove some roadblocks for them as well because it's unnecessary, right? Like the more we grow all together, the better for the whole humanity. I agree. That's yeah. also our mission, you know, like that's why we started on Cap. Our mission is helping founders win and we started by providing founders with very easy access to their capital. So for those of you who don't know what Uncapped does is if you are any kind of online business, online entrepreneur, e-commerce, SaaS, whatever, mobile app, uh, you can come to us, give us access to the data by just giving us, you know, a few, few clicks. We connect to your Shopify, Stripe, PayPal, whatever. Within a couple hours, you'll get from us the offer for funding and we'll give you the capital, uh, debt capital. We don't take any ownership of a business. We'll take any equity, any warrants, any shares, and we allow you to scale very faster. Uh, we allow you to buy more inventory, hire more people, spend money on Google ads, Facebook ads, whatever you need to help. But on top of giving this capital, we realized that there's so much, so big, such a big opportunity now to help you in, in other ways. Uh, so we're working very hard on, you know, how to help you manage, how to help you run your business better, how to, how to help you make better decisions. How can we help you get access to other forms of funding faster? And I think we feel that we have a moral and social responsibility to advise you in running the company and, and scaling it. 
So, you know, we clearly see each other as a very mission-driven company with a goal of really helping all this digital economy grow. This was a very nice segue into talking about Uncapped, which was what we really also wanted to talk about because it's such a fantastic idea. Obviously, you're not the first company. We've seen a few of those examples back in the US, but at the same time, there was no company that has been so focused on um, helping founders grow quickly in Europe. You guys are the first movers here in Europe, and maybe you can talk a little bit about how you got this idea in the first place. Yeah, sure. So... As I mentioned, I, as I was a VC, I was meeting thousands of entrepreneurs who were building very good companies, very stable businesses, but couldn't raise VC money. They didn't fit the VC model because the probability of them being a unicorn was very slim. If you are not attacking by unicorn level valuations, VCs will not invest in you. At the same time, these were very good founders with a very solid businesses, and they could clearly see that unlike these unicorns, which have a very slim probability of achieving this success, these founders, 90% of time, will have a decent, successful business. So at the same time, also, I, I've seen the emergence of new ways of funding in the US. So revenue-based finance was starting, uh, you know, being introduced by PayPal Capital, Shopify Capital, Stripe Capital, but these solutions were clearly missing in Europe. So actually, at that time, I was working as a VC, and initially, I really believed in this opportunity, and I wanted to, to invest in someone doing this kind of business. But I was looking for it. No one in Europe was, was building something like this. And then I realized that, you know what, this is an opportunity for me to, to do something new in life and build a company in this space. There's clearly an opportunity here. So quit my job, email, message some of my VC friends asking for advice and capital. They decided this is a smart idea. They committed to, to invest. And, you know, a year and a half later, here we are. Yeah, I remember following you through this whole story when you told me, okay, I'm out. Okay, I'm building this. Okay, this is happening. <laughs> and we've been talking about this, you know, ever since ever since you started. And the name really fits the whole mission of what you guys are doing, which, uh, which is wonderful. Also in gaming, you know, whenever you run big campaigns, we would always say to our partners, just go and cap, go and cap, just, you know, yeah. sky's the limit. Right. And so this is where the name come from. The name was such a big problem. It took us six months to figure out the name because so not many people know, but the first name of a company, it was a terrible one. We called it Jet Loans. Uh, like we wanted I to remember. Like, I remember. Yeah. It was such a bad name. And like, you know, every day I was getting a feedback. It's not I love the idea, but the name is terrible. And I was like, I know. And we were we were thinking of hundreds and hundreds of different names. Like the, the list was, and it was like a daily struggle, you know, uh, like you want to build a business, but at the same time, we have to come with a new name. And I remember with Asher, my co-founder, we were at this event one night when we were talking to some entrepreneurs and VCs and we had a couple of drinks. And I was like, you know what? Our product is a bit similar to Uncapped. Like Uncapped notice when you give someone the loan with no limit. Whatever valuation is, the investors will have to pay with valuation. And you know, we really want to make the founders' possibilities unlimited. Why don't we call our company Uncapped? And we were testing this idea and testing. And I think it really fits because... It it's really all, all, all what it's about, you know, it's about giving the founders unlimited options, unlimited possibility to grow a business. I think it fits perfectly exactly what you guys are trying to do, because um, like we also very quickly realized it's not really about the money. It never really is when you're working on something that you're truly passionate about to that point when you said that you very quickly realized that it's not only the funding, what they're actually looking for is advice support that can help them move faster. 
and having you guys or other partners as a sounding board so that they can get the feedback quicker. It's very helpful. Yeah, so yeah it's this is, cool. you know, it's hard to scale, but this is definitely a big part of what we're trying to do. And it gives us so much pleasure to help founders, you know, like my favorite stories is, you know, we have a few companies where we started to help them very early on. And, you know, we sort of have founders who were sometimes working for business part-time and because of capital we gave them, because of some advice we gave them, they managed to start working with full time and have employees. They grew their revenues 10, 20x. Suddenly from a two people company, it's a 15 people company with VCs. It really like gives you so much joy to know that you, you, you really help people realize their dreams. When you say, you know, this is not scalable, if you think about that, you could not help them at all, right? Sometimes, because a lot of people say like every business that you're doing, or you, you always need to think about scale. But at the same time, the scale, the difference between not helping anybody and helping two, three, five, ten 10 companies or 10 founders, that's a huge scale. The fact that you guys already are doing all of that, that's so much more than nothing, right? That, yeah. that is also an option. So. Don't get me wrong. I think we can scale it and we do want to scale it. You know, the, a lot of my thinking is 50 years ago, if you needed the capital to grow, there was no VCs, you would go to the bank. And the banks are very different because the banks are much more local. You had your local branch manager who knew everyone in the city. He knew all the entrepreneurs mm -hmm. and he would be your advisor. He would be someone helping you. He would give you the loan. The bank would give you the loan because they know, hey, you are actually a good person working hard and uh, maybe the numbers don't show it, but I do believe that Mr. XYZ will actually, his business will uh, will do well. And now, you know, the, the world has changed a lot. We became very impersonal. The banks don't have branches. Everything is on the phone. You don't have any relationship with a, with a bank. Probably you don't know a single name of a person in the, in the bank where you're a customer. Yeah. And we are kind of changing it back, you know, like we think that banking and lending has to be more personal. We are very data-driven. So when you come to us, decision is almost purely based on the data, but we still try to have a personal relationship with you. Every customer who joins us, uh, we have a long conversation with you. We want to understand your needs. I want to understand what you're trying to achieve. We try to understand how can we help you? What kind of tools and support can we give to you? And that's you know how we're thinking about building differentiated product in a new world where everything is algorithmic and impersonal yeah. even when you see the numbers and they don't always add up initially if especially if you have the expertise in the industry or in the category and you can spot why this is this is invaluable feedback right that yeah. you would not get as a founder from anybody else to see like hey you know what like we've seen 10 of those cases this is off can you yeah. investigate that part and see why this is off and come back to us in a month or two because maybe this is just a, a little tweak that you have to make and then we'll be back and talking exactly about and it's you. important also to give feedback to the customer so very often you know when our data tell you what we cannot give you a decision we'll often come back to tell you and why is it so you know like we'll give you the advice maybe we'll see you know Mm. maybe your gross margin for example maybe you're selling your products too cheap and actually overall we see that in this industry people have margin of this type you have this type of margin and that's why you're starting your business maybe you should see how can you how can you change your pricing or or, yeah. or or think about it or maybe your acquisition cost is too high and like you really compared to the industry benchmarks you need to optimize the campaigns because your your economics don't make sense and founders really appreciate it 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is golden, right? Like, yeah. That's what you want. Before we talk about the company and the culture, this is what I also want to talk about today with you. I wanted to ask about your journey to finding Asher as your co-founder. Yeah, How, because, because I feel like I've been thinking about a lot of things you know, on my own. And until I found somebody that I can work with on the idea, uh, I actually w- was in a place where I thought, oh, you know what? I will never build my own company. But once you find somebody that is willing to work with you, is, pa- is just as passionate and is just as driven, it just changes the whole trajectory of your growth. So I thought that would be a cool thing to talk about. So as you know, I started the company without the co-founder initially. And with, with Asher, we met only when I was a couple months into the process of, of starting uh, Uncapped. So initially I felt I'll just do it on my own, but then I quickly realized that having a sparring partner is very, very important. And having someone as passionate about building this is, is, is very important. I had many people who I was talking to about being a co-founder and every single time I felt that these people didn't inspire me. These people were not enhancing my knowledge. And I think when you have a co-founder, you have to A, truly respect this person and truly believe that they are very complimentary to you and add the skills you're missing. And I think with Asher, the most interesting thing was when when I met him, like the first time I felt he's way smarter than me on many, many angles. And I'm actually, I'm I'm a very stubborn person. And he was the first person I was really willing to, to, to listen to about a lot of things. I know he comes from a very different background. So, you know, he spent way more time in the operating roles I come much more from the investing uh, background. I'm much more analytical. I'm probably better in numbers than him. He's way better in structuring the processes and making things work. Uh, He will be much more thoughtful about people aspects and like this non-tangible aspects. I'll be the one driving the company forward and pushing everyone to the limit to go to to some direction. When I met him, uh, we were introduced by, by people from the industry. I think we clicked off very, very fast. So he's always says that uh, he wanted to hate me because he wanted to start the, the, the same company as me, actually. Uh, so I think we also, the good thing about this, we were both thinking about the same idea independently. We both saw the gap in the market. We both saw the need that there is for this type of product. So it was very obvious for, we, I didn't have to sell him on the idea or, on, or he didn't have to sell me on the idea. And very quickly from the meeting, we realized that, you know, we are both very complementary. Together, we can build something much stronger than uh, than not. And you know, I know that to be honest, this was in, when building and capped, having him on board was probably the best decision I ever made. Like like the company wouldn't be where it is today without him, and there is no doubt about it, zero doubt about it. And uh, we have a very interesting relationship. We I think we discuss a lot. You know, from very early young days, I love discussion. I love I love. Uh, whole thing of exchanging opinions and exchanging ideas and challenging each other. And I think he loves it too. And we have a lot of discussions, sometimes in front of a team. And it's very funny because very often our team thinks, oh, the founders are arguing, they are not aligned. But for us, it's just a process of discovery. For us, it's a process. What is the best product we can build? What is the best decision we can make? And, you know, we are 99% of time, we are aligned and we make decisions together and we come to the conclusion we are aligned but now, I think now, now our biggest challenge is we have to show this to the team because they sometimes don't feel it. They feel like, oh, Piotr and Asher are arguing. Well, we're just trying to come to the truth mm-hmm. and we're trying to push the team to go to the truth because we want, I, we love to be challenged. You know, the best engineers we have are the ones who will question us 
and tell us, guys, you actually, you're right, your, your proposal is stupid. Like we hired some, we hired a, a new engineer a couple months ago and I was, the, mo the moment I was most impressed with him was when I, I told him to build a new kind of product. And after two days, he comes back to me and tells me, Piotr, but I think if you think about the product from this perspective, I don't think the economics of this would work. And we're working this for three months. And this guy thought critically about this product. He healed the work of three months in, in two days. He was new and he basically was thinking critically. He was like really trying to understand, but why are you doing it like this? Why, 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 why? And no one else in the company was asking this. And I think asking this question, why, why, why is very, very important. And this is what, the, what people have should, should do every day. I was just going to say that, you know, when you guys are already sparring and, and discussing things, all you're doing is asking each other, but why are you there? And I think people feel so triggered by this question. It's not really to judge you in any way, in a personal way, but it's just the curiosity of like, where's this idea coming from? It's like, why would we do this? It's like, what yeah. do we get out of testing this or building this? Um, and it's just trying to understand. And I think if you come from that place of understanding and curiosity and you have that partner on the other side who uh, understands that mindset, you can continue to have, you know, hour long discussions and nobody's going to feel like there's a disagreement. There's just, like you said, that process of discovering the truth behind the idea. Yeah. So. So that's super valuable. And also we should say that Usher, it's not the singer Usher, it's a different Usher. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so, yes, yes. Although Usher is very talented, maybe also sometimes sings in the karaoke I never, I never, setup. I never heard him singing, but I'll, I'll, I'll pitch it to him at our next uh, team event. Yeah, and speaking of the team, actually, I wanted to talk to you about the culture today, especially when everyone's distributed and the fact that you also very consciously have started the company in two places, really, right? Like, so both in London and in Warsaw, I wanted to talk about the way you both approach building the culture and managing the, the challenges of today when, you know, with COVID and, and everything um, all together. Yeah, so we started the company in two locations with uh, founders and business analysis people being in London and engineering team being in Warsaw. I felt that Holland has a very strong engineers and, you know, it's it's actually much just much easier to, to hire them there than in London. London is so competitive, but as an unknown company, it's very, very hard to acquire top talent. When I think in, in Warsaw, we managed to get outstanding engineers who are willing to bet their careers on, 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 on the mission of a company. Very quickly, because the company was started in August, engineers joined us in October, so when the team joined, the COVID happened only a couple months later. So we were forced to work remotely very, very fast. And already at the beginning of COVID, we realized that we have to make a decision about the future of a company. And we made, a, it was, we were debating this a lot, but we decided then to commit to fully remote company culture going forward forever. And I think this was a very tough decision to give up the office. And, but I think very, very smart one uh, at the end because A, it gave people certainty. I'm, I'm interviewing a lot of people who are like, who, who hate the fact that they can't go to the office, but they have to stay in the place where they are now, in the city where they are, because maybe at some point in six months, we'll go back to the office. And I think giving the certainty to people now that actually mm -hmm. we are a fully remote company, you have to buy into this. Otherwise, you know, if you, if you want to be in the office, it's not possible here. It allowed people to adjust 
And now it allows us to hire amazing people everywhere in the world. So we already have people in oh, many, many cities already. Can't even count them anymore. We're fully distributed. But this also made us to focus very early how to build a very strong remote culture. So we are always trying to learn from, uh, you know, base best companies in the world, like, I don't know, Basecamp or, or, or quite, a, quite a few of them. And you basically start focusing on how do I build a strong remote work culture? It's from basic things like, okay, give people equipment, right? So, so we let everyone, we give them money to, to buy stuff for their home office. You communicate differently. So we have virtual all hands. We have, we try to write down more stuff. We try to really avoid meetings because you want people to work asynchronously. You communicate much more or because there's much more written communication than, than verbal one. But I think overall, you also hire very differently because from day one, you hire people who will fit the remote culture. The fact that it all happened very early in our development, more than, you know, probably 70% of a company was never in our office. It's much easier for us to adjust. As a company, we have five values. We, when we think about how we, how we hire and how we evaluate people, we identified the five values, which are the most important to us. And first one is impact. So... Number one thing we expect from everyone in the company, we want them to achieve remarkable amounts of critical work. Because especially in the remote culture, this is the only way I can judge your work. So are you able to deliver the work? And I think it's especially important in startup where in startup, you don't have a slack. When someone is not pulling their work, you can see it immediately. Yeah. And the rest of the team can see. So we have to make sure that everyone can pull their weight uh, because otherwise other people are unhappy, etc. And we have you have to be reliable to the colleagues around you. Second, the big value for us is courage. So this comes to my discussions with Asher. We 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 want people to question actions. We want them to make tough decisions. We want them to speak up if they think you know it's in Uncap's best interest. We really want people to be brave because you will not be a successful company if you don't make courageous decisions. I was reading the tweets from yesterday how Amazon created AWS. Not many people know, but it happened in year 2000 when Linux was always six-year-old. Amazon was using Sun, Sun Microsystems uh, mm -hmm. computers, and they were very expensive. And this was such a huge cost to Amazon that Amazon had a very big financial problems because of this. And at that time, they made a very brave decision to move everything to Linux and to microservices architecture. They had to stop development of everything else for a year to move everything to Linux. A very risky project, a very courageous decision. But when they did, their costs, A, fall dramatically, and they finally became the, the cash flow positive. And B, they had the new kind of architecture. And they realized that they have so much server power because they, they on the, on the, for the Christmas and Boxing Day and, and Black Friday, they have so much servers they need. But for the rest of the year, they're sitting idle. We're thinking, can we sell these servers to, to someone else? And that's how we started to think about AWS. So it was a very courageous decision, which led to the creation of AWS. And I think every successful company has to take this courageous decision at some point, you know, either getting to some market or getting out of some market or building some product. And I think we want people to, to have a courage and whatever in the company have courage. The third value we have is communication. And which is especially important that when you have remote company culture, you have to yeah. communicate well, you have to communicate efficiently, you have to communicate with the right style. Like sometimes people misread the uh, misread your emails, misread your Slack messages. So you have to really make sure that you adapt your communication style to everyone else. Our fourth big 
uh, important value is passion. We really want people to inspire others around you. My dream is whenever you meet someone from Uncapped, you should see their passion in what we do and in our passion, in our mission to help entrepreneurs and build something. Same as Amazon, you know, like insane care about the customers and, uh, and their values. And finally, it's about the inclusion. With everything what's happening in the world, there's so much hate speech, so many differences. We really want to be open to everyone. We really want to make sure that people of all cultures of values are, uh, are, are welcome in the company. And, you know, as we are a fully remote company, very global company, uh, it's important that everyone can feel safe. And, and, you know, we seek out all the points of view in the, in the, in, in the business. Yeah, that's a great summary of what the company stands for. And, you know, sometimes you hear people talk about what values they want other people to follow in the company and they never feel quite right or they never feel quite genuine. And I think the way you talk about all of this really is embedded in the company's uh, mission and vision. And, you know, I know I've known you for forever, right? So it's also, I know the kind of person that you are. And I know that this really also stems from your personality and and how you conduct yourself on a daily basis and how important uh, those things are for you. And I Uh, think, you know, when, uh, I think we spoke about co-founder, when you're looking for the co-founder ever, understanding his values and having alignments of the values is is the most important thing. Because I think you will have misalignment here. This will be the big problem for you down the line. When I was speaking to other people about being co-founder, them having different value system was probably the biggest reason why I decided not to work with them. That and I also think this is an exercise that many founders really put off for much longer. Once we have a team, then we're going to think about what our values are. Then we're going to think about what is it that we stand for. And a lot of people focus on, okay, like we want to build a product. We want to build a service, da, da, da. And then they completely forget to really build that backbone of the organization. And I always say this, there are great companies, but terrible organizations. And if you're a founder and you don't think about that connecting tissue uh, that you need to also build as you're building the body of a company that's a very scary place to be because soon after you know you might achieve some success people will quit or people will not be able to really stick with you because they do not like you said they do not have the same set of values this is hard for people because this is another area that a founder or a ceo needs to be thinking about apart from all of the other problems that they have to deal with on a daily basis. But that is what it is to be a co-founder or, or, yeah. or an entrepreneur. Like it's harder than having a job. It's yeah. harder to just come into the office and, you know, type stuff on the keyboard or work from home. But it really is a challenging role. Probably it's like being a parent. It's one of the hardest things you'll ever do is building a company. Yeah. I'm really glad to see that you guys are starting it with the right attitude and the right, you said, processes and the right values. Uh, so that's great. What's the feedback been so far from the team, you know, working remotely? How are they feeling? How you guys are checking on them? What's the, what are the processes there? We measure actually the team's feedback every week. We we have a system where we ask every week different questions to the team. And actually two, three questions every week. And the question rotates. So mm-hmm. like every every quarter you get the ask the same question. And I think it took us some adjustment. I think especially engineers, they initially they really... Uh, we're missing the office and collaboration. And I think now we are really in the groove and everyone is really happy. And we try to do some activities, remote activities as much as we can. When it's possible, we bring people together. So now we are in a very big lockdown, but we, we do organize in-person events for them. As soon as it's possible, we'll have a 
whole company out, you know, trips abroad to, to integrate everyone. But I think people, they, people adjust, first of all. You know, when I work in Google, what I really liked about the organization, you treat people with respect and responsibility and you don't micromanage them. We don't, mm-hmm. like, you know, our people have a lot of freedom. If someone wants to, in the middle of a day, go somewhere, do some errands, we don't check on you. Like you, you can do, if someone tells me, hey, I'm traveling somewhere, I'm working from some, some, somewhere else, it's all fine. They can, they, they can do it. We give them so much flexibility. And, but I think at the same time, we give them a lot of responsibility and they are you know, very, very capable people and they adapt well. The feedback we've got so far, honestly, like we ask people the questions and we, we asked them a couple two months ago about you know, the feedback to me and Asher. And we were very humbled because people said, you are the best bosses we ever had. It's really nice to hear that, you know, like the feedback was extremely positive. Yeah, just argue less. We love you, but stop arguing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Literally, literally, this is the feedback. They also get to know us better. I think the problem is when the company scales so fast and, you know, 50% of the people in the company are with us for less than two months, they are not used to the style sometimes. And, you know, they are used to much more corporate culture. And when they come to the new culture where you have to question the score and you really are are asked to speak up or like your voice matters and you 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 are given some responsibility it takes time for them to adjust to a new reality and understand this is the organization which is actually how we work and how we operate it's a dance right you show them the move they try it out they stumble the first time then they learn and then they get better and as long as they know that there's support and they have the time to try out and like you said adjust they'll be fine it's a fascinating process also to watch i think when you're able to see how people transition from from being this scared person that's never been able to say anything that they thought was important a good point on the office right when people say like oh i really miss the office but it's interesting to understand why they miss the office so is that a question of how do i actually organize my work do i need someone do i need to break up my work to be more focused and do I really need 700 people around me or is it that I need to stand up from my you know and and go for a quick walk and I'll get the same benefit so I think also understanding why people say they miss the office is important I've been a whole I've been a huge proponent of working remotely forever I, I would rather put in more time being intentional with people when I can and when I have to really dive into numbers that I just it's hard to do when someone's talking at you you know, yeah. and yeah. I think, I think they mainly miss social life, right? And I have to say, I feel really bad for the especially young employees we have in the company because I remember, you know, usually, um, you know, when I was young, you join and you have, I don't know, 50, 100 people same age in the you know, in a bank or Google or somewhere else. You make friends, you, you befriend people, get to know them. And now they are missing out on this part. So, so their social life is really suffering. Um, but I think, you know, this means that, but this is the same for everyone, right? Like everyone suddenly mm-hmm. has, to, yeah. has, to, has to reorganize their social life. And, uh, but I think this is the, the, the biggest problem, especially for, for the young employees. I think the older ones, you know, they always have their families. They, they have, their life was very different. <laughs> But for the young ones, you know, that's why, you know, we are working hard to, to think how to bring them together because, you know, you really want them to, to, to not miss out on that part in their life. This is a huge thing, right? Like I have, I have to say that um, I've never been so happy that I'm as old as I am. 
Like, you know, you usually think, oh, I would rather be younger, but I would not rather be younger at all, given yeah. what, ha what has happened, because we were so lucky to have gone through university and our first years of professional life in those good old days, unmasked, swarming on at those wild parties that we still do kind of uh, enjoy. <laughs> but we've had a lot of them uh, back in the day. And that was awesome. I even remember once we were at New Year's Eve at your place sometimes like very it was possible crazy crazy years ago when you were still living and we're in Mokotuf, i remember ah yes yeah ah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay so before i let you go we're doing the vp roulette so you get to choose three questions out of 10 of uh, very random ones and and let's see what you come up with so let's go with number six number six <laughs> is which of the jobs that you've had or things that you've done were the most transformative for your career Oh my God, I had, I changed my career four times now, but I think the most transformative for me was, was joining Google because I think I met very smart people. I've seen, I've seen what good looks like. I've seen amazing processes. It gave me so much more perspective on how, how does a well-run company looks like and, and what ambitious people do and how I think and opened my network a lot. At least you're the, the one person that doesn't hate Google. Yeah, well, listen, I wouldn't recommend Google today still, you know, I think, um, I, I think why I joined Google in 2000, 10 years ago, right? 10, Google 10 years ago was the Google today, that's for sure. And, you know, out of a team I worked with, almost every single person is gone and they are doing mm -hmm. amazing things, you know, like mm -hmm. my, one of my bosses, he's a CFO of TransferWise, another was CFO of Deliveroo, another friend just sold his startup to Google. Another friend has a super successful startup. Another person works in index ventures. You know, they are like really, really amazing people, but they all left Google because now I think time of a Google has passed. And, you know, I still, there's an amazing company with a huge moat and I still own all the shares I ever received. I never sold a single one because I think they will keep making money because there's no alternative to them. But I think if I were to join the company now to get similar kind of experience, I wouldn't join them. I would join a some of a fast-growing startup. Just at that I, time, yeah. there are no startups. Like, mm. like trans I wanted to join a startup. I When I joined Google, I met TransferWise founders. They were eight people at the time. Like, it's just the ecosystem was so much smaller. Mm. Yeah, I was just going to say that if there's any advice coming from your response, it would be to go find a startup that is on this, like, upward trajectory and is going, is really aiming for disruption in the category or in the space and again, seeing if the founders are the right people, if it's run well, join those people who are trying to, to really make a change because there's always going to be room for startups. It might not be in this specific area that Google is in, but in any other industry. Yeah, something to do, something to think about. Okay, next question. Let's say, let's go for question number four. Four, what are the top three things that you do for you in terms of like self-care? Very good question. Very good question. Uh, whenever I can, I try to work out. So gym is a huge part of my life. And I think physical activity really creates endorphins and help me stay mentally stable. And I think any kind of sport is always, sport was always a big part of my life. And I think it's anyone who's successful should, should, should really find the time to dedicate to the sport. Uh, I think it's important to have some kind of uh, hobbies all the time. I change my hobbies all the like probably every year. My newest hobby is DJing. I really love electronic music and I think learning how to DJ is just like challenging me in a very new way, very creative way and, and allows me to forget about something else. And I think the finally is 
especially with COVID, dedicating time for friends. I think I was, I think it's sometimes it's very tough because when you work very long hours, you really you're too tired to meet them, you're too tired to to invest. But I think it's so important, so rewarding to to have time to build these social relationships now when you don't even have them in the office. But definitely very high on my priority. I always say you don't have time, you make time. So yeah. it's always a decision. And yeah. and I think it's important that when you're an adult, and it's interesting, the, the more things you have on your list, and it's hard to make time, if you are dedicated to something, you, you always do that. And I think the other thing that you do that I always admire that you read a lot of books, right, as well. Last year, you did the 52 books a year challenge. Uh, it was two years ago. So I have to say, yeah, I have to say that since starting a company, this is probably the one, the one thing that I miss the most. I don't have enough time for the books. I don't make enough time for the books, but I love reading. And I think reading really... I read a lot of nonfiction. I know, and you know, people read different stuff. I love to read nonfiction. I love to read the stories of other successful entrepreneurs and how they fought, how they how they trained the status quo. And it really helps to open your mind and also helps you to fall asleep. So mm. highly recommending this as well. Yeah, I also am a big nonfiction fan. I do that or read Ayn Rand, uh, but she's, you know, it's all a parable to the real life anyway. Okay, and the last one. Let's go for question number 10. 10. The most important skill for success in the remote environment. Oh, wow. Ooh, I think communication at the end of the day, because I think in the remote environment, even with your manager, you have so much less interaction. And it's very now, it's very now important to communicate clearly and effectively, get feedback from the others, also make sure others are informed, get input when, when it's needed. And I, I've seen that the most successful people in our company are the ones who are able to really stay on top of the things and, and communicate with me and the others and like, I think get things done because of that. Mm, yeah, that's great, great advice and a great point. In the end of the day, it's all about how we talk to each other, that we listen and hear what, what everyone else has to say and, and really make use of that. So. That's a great answer. All right. I think that's a wrap. Thank you so much, Piotr, for being on the podcast. That was very insightful and I think very helpful for everyone who's thinking about starting their own company, who's running their company as well, and how they can they think about culture. And hopefully everyone who is courageous, driven, and wants to make an impact and is passionate and would like to join your company at some point because you guys are hiring as well, like crazy. You'll get at least a few inbounds from yeah. listening to that episode. That would love it. Even if there's no role for you, please drop me an email. It's piotr at weareoncap.com. And you know, we would love to see if we can create a role for you. Like we're hiring loads of roles. Join one of the fastest growing fintechs in Europe. Yeah, Thank 100%. You for me. Thanks again, Piotr, for joining me. This was really awesome. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week. Bye.